Welcome to Philosophy and Faith, where our goal is to help you navigate your intellectual and spiritual journey, especially in regards to topics like God, faith and doubt, meaning and purpose, and more. I'm Nathan Beasley. And I'm Daniel Jepson. And together we discuss the big questions that humans have wrestled with for thousands of years. We're glad you can join us. How are you today, Nathan? Feeling energized. Awesome. Yeah. You? You know, for some reason, talking and thinking about these things like we're talking about now really energizes me also. Yeah. So so today we are getting back into our discussion on the four worldviews. Looking forward to that. It's been really, really good so far just seeing a summary of the way that a lot of people have thought throughout the years. Right. And for those who haven't heard the previous podcasts or maybe just need a refresher, I am basically breaking down human thought in the area of philosophy and religion into four families of worldview. One of those would be theism, the belief that there is one God who created the universe and then all the flows out of that. Another you would call naturalism, which is the worldview that I think arises very naturally from atheism, which would view the natural world or the material world as the only thing that exists. And then the third worldview would be basic Eastern thought, and in particular, pantheistic monism. So pantheism, God is in all things, monism, all is one, which is especially associated with Hindu thought, but much Buddhist thought and other Eastern religions. Though they have a lot of differences, they have philosophically much of the same worldview. And then the last worldview is paganism or polytheism, the idea that there are many, many gods or spirits within this world. So that's where we're at on that. Great, great. And you said family, you're using that term like a biological metaphor, right? Sure. Yeah. Family, and then you would have species and genus underneath that. So under theism, you'd have three main worldviews underneath that. That would be Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Each of those is going to have different ideas about many things, but philosophically, they work much the same way. Great. Thanks for that recap. So today we're going to be talking about the future. Yes. And how each of these four families view uh, what's to come in the future or what's not to come in the future. Right. So we're going to be looking at what does the future hold, both for the individual person as well as humanity or the cosmos as a whole. So each one of these worldviews gives a very different answer to that. Gotcha. So why is it important to think about what lies ahead in the future? Yeah, good question. One reason, perhaps the main reason, is because it helps you understand what the worldviews are teaching so you can understand which worldview you choose to embrace. The goal is to live an examined life where you're examining yourself, but also you're examining what you believe about these deepest things. You're not just going along the current of whatever fads of intellectual thought are in your culture right now, but you're consciously choosing a particular worldview that you said, this is what I believe. Thomas Carlyle said, a man lives by believing something, not about thinking and debating about many things. To be a fully mature human means, among other things, that you have intellectually chosen what kind of worldview you believe in and then seek to live that out consistently. Yeah, that seems to make sense to me. I'm a very goal-oriented person. Yeah. And so I think that there's a good illustration here of like, okay, I think about what the future holds or what the future could hold because there's potential there. 
and then try to organize my life accordingly to, to meet those goals, whether the goals are physical health or intellectual health, you know, want to read a certain number of books or certain kinds of books or that those sorts of things to help uh -huh. me meet those goals. And I think that part of the purpose is in life is derived from what we understand the future to hold. Sure. So if my, if my goal is to leave a legacy, like I need to be working for that now, or if I want to be healthy for my kids, that matters now because then I live my life intentionally and in accordance with what I believe the future holds or what the future can hold. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that out. The idea of purpose, which we talked about in a previous podcast, and the idea of where we are headed, do we have a future after death and what does it look like? Those are very much tied in together. Yeah. All right. You ready to get into these? Yeah, let's do this. And I thought for today, anyway, we could go in reverse order from what we usually do. We usually start with theism, go to naturalism, then to Eastern thought, and then to paganism. Let's reverse it today. Okay. And the reason why is because when we deal with paganism or polytheism, I don't have as much to say. Okay. And that's because of two reasons. Number one, paganism and polytheism don't usually give a systematic answer to what lies after death. And because of that, here's the second reason, there's a lot of variation. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. If you look at the paganism of the ancient world, say the Greek world or the Mediterranean world, they don't have a clear conception of what happens after death at all, from what I can see anyway. If you read the Greek literature of the time of the ancient world, where when Greece was polytheistic and paganistic, what you find is that after death, you live in some sort of shadowy existence. Hmm. So this is symbolized by you cross the river Styx and then you live in Tartarus and this underworld where you still exist in some way, but shadow is really the best way, I think, to describe that because you have some sort of consciousness, but you don't have your full bodily activity, and it's kind of obscure how this works out. But if you read the literature, you see people down and meeting the shades of like Achilles and Hector and all these heroes and whatnot, and that's what they're called. They're called shades. That's derived from shadow, obviously. It's like when you're standing outside in the sun, there are two things. There's you and your shade, the shadow you create. Mm -hmm. And in their minds, that's what's left. But it's not really clear what that looks like. Do those people eat? Do they think clearly? Do they love? None of that to me is answered consistently in polytheism or paganism. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then that's further muddied when you look at the paganism of, say, the, the Norse or some of the ancient American tribes, mm -hmm. the tribes in Central and South America. Okay, so like the Mayans and the Aztecs. Right. All that. Okay. I think to me, at least I don't understand that there's a consistent answer to what happens after okay. death. So from my viewpoint, I can't really address that too much because, at least in my understanding, there's not a whole lot that's a consistent teaching. Yeah. But when you come to Eastern thought, well, the story is quite a bit different there. There's a very detailed and highly developed system of intellectual thought that's very intellectually coherent. That means it all fits together about the individual and death and the future as a whole. And it's also very different than what we in the West normally think of at all. Sweet. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. So we'll go on to talk about what the future holds, both for us as individuals and the world as a whole, 
according to Eastern thought. And again, Eastern thought is not monolithic. There are variations. But the most important ideas of this are those that develop out of the pantheistic monism of Hinduism, captured very memorably and beautifully in, in Hermann Hesse's novel Siddhartha, which he wrote in the 1970s. He was actually German, but he probably did a better job of translating Eastern thought into Western audiences more than any other person I can think of. But anyway, Buddhism is going to be very similar with one difference that we'll talk about, and that's kind of the nature of the ultimate reality that we cycle back into. But that word cycle is going to be the key. Mm -hmm. We in the West are accustomed, almost from birth, of thinking of history as a linear progression. It is an arrow. Yeah. Right? So you've got the arrow at time. And in the East, the conception of time is quite different. It's more of a circle or a cycle is the metaphor there. Within this, you also have the cycle of human existence. So let me see if I can explain this a little bit. In most Eastern philosophy, the human being is caught in the cycle of samsara. Samsara is this cycle of death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. This is also called reincarnation or the transmigration of souls. In samsara, you die, but then you're born as a different living thing. Now, you might not be a human. In fact, you probably won't be a human. You could be any, any living thing, from what I understand. You could be a gnat, or you could come back as a cow. You could come back as a human. And within that humanity, you would also come back within a certain caste system. That part's more controversial and not as universal. But the idea that your life here, that you presently live, is not your full existence, is pretty much universal. So again, if you go back, we talked a while ago, one of the previous episodes, about this idea of Atman. Yeah. And Atman is this living force. So it's not quite the same as a, as a soul because it's not conscious, it's not necessarily volitional, but it's this living force, this living entity now, you, Nathan, in your present state, you are one manifestation that that will take on within the cycle of who you are. You live before with a different manifestation of that, either as a human or some other being. And the metaphor that's often used, even in these sacred tests, is that the Atman will take off and put on these different suits of clothing, just like you do for a different day. Hmm. So that's the cycle of samsara, that you are born and then you die, and then you are born, and then you die, and then you are born, and then you die. Related to that is the idea of karma. So karma is the mechanism that determines what state you are next born into, and it works by necessity. So what you do in this life determines what you are born into the next life. That's the basic idea of karma. It's not that bad things happen to you in this life if you do bad things. Mm. That's often misunderstood. So it's not instant karma, the, like the YouTube videos? No. There's <laughs> Which a, are hilarious. Yes, they are. <laughs> but no, that's a, kind of a perversion of the idea. Okay. Yeah, this is super fascinating because I think of time as linear for sure. Mm -hmm. And like at the end of life, there is a destination or the naturalists, I think we'll get into, we'll say maybe there is no destination, but there's still, it's this life and then something else versus okay, this is cyclical and happening again. And then it's also super interesting to me how, I, I don't know what you would call it, but you could go to some guru or psychotherapist who could help you try to have memories from past lives. 
that's always just been fascinating. I've just been been curious about all that stuff and don't know how it works or anything. Yeah, and I don't know if that idea, talk about your past life, is actually an orthodox idea or not. It might be just some Western perversion of that. Yeah, but something we talked about at the beginning that's really fascinating is the future does affect the way that you live your life now. And so if you think that, okay, in my next life, I want to come up as a higher caste or at least not move backwards to some lesser living, being like a bird or a worm or whatever and that, then I want to now make decisions to live well and to have good karma. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot of it. And then also as you move up to a higher state of being and you're a conscious human, then also you seek enlightenment. Can you define that? And what's the goal there? Is it, is sure. it Brahman? Is that the right word that I remember from a few weeks ago? Yeah. So let's talk about that. But let me back up here. Okay. So for the individual, death changes nothing essential about an individual's nature. So when you die, Nathan, what's essential to you is unchanged. You're just changing your clothes. The Atman, the part of you that is eternal, doesn't change. It just takes a different form. It wears different clothes. So again, let's just make sure we're clear on this. You, Nathan, you are the manifestation right now of this Atman. When you die, nothing essential about you changes, just this outward form of Nathan Beasley. But you will be reincarnated as another person or another type of being because the Atman within you is indestructible and eternal. So it cannot die. So... Does it teach the immortality of the soul? Well, yes and no. Because, again, the Atman is not the same as the soul. It's not personal. It's not conscious. So, in this sense, only Atman is valuable. Gotcha. So, the so the goal then is enlightenment. Yeah. So, ultimately, the goal is to move out of samsara, which is this cycle that we've just been talking about. Okay. The mechanism of the cycle is karma. Samsara is the cycle itself, and the goal is to move beyond that. Now, how you do that and what that looks like varies a little bit between Hinduism and Buddhism, for example. I'm going to talk about that. But let me read you one quote before we do to kind of illustrate how all this means that history itself is not working as an arrow of time, but more as a cycle. I'm going to be quoting from the novel Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. And one of the central images in this book is the river. And at the climax of the novel, Siddhartha bends down and listens intently to the river. So here I'm going to quote it for a few minutes. Siddhartha tried to listen better. The picture of his father, his own picture, and the picture of his son all flowed into each other. Kabbalah's picture also appeared and flowed on. And the picture of Govinda and the others emerged and passed on. They all became part of the river. It was the goal of all of them, yearning, desiring, suffering, and the river's voice was full of longing, full of smarting woe, full of insatiable desire, and the river flowed onward towards its goal. Siddhartha saw the river hasten, made up of himself and his relatives and all the people he had ever seen. All the waves in the water hastened, suffering, towards goals, many goals, to the waterfall, to the sea, to the current, to the ocean, And all the goals were reached, and each one was succeeded by another. The water changed to vapor and rose, became rain and came down again, became spring, brook, and river, 
change to new, flow to new. But the yearning voice had altered. It still echoed sorrowfully, searchingly, but other voices accompanied it. Voices of pleasure and sorrow, good and evil voices, laughing and lamenting voices, hundreds of voices, thousands of voices. And then he writes, quote, And all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. The great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, Om, perfection. And it's at this point, Siddhartha achieves an inner unity with the one, and the serenity of knowledge passes over his face. So in this passage, and throughout the book, the river becomes an image for the cosmos. When you look at it from the standpoint of someone along the bank, the river flows. But when looked at in entirety, from spring to brook, to river to ocean, to vapor, to rain, to spring, the river does not flow Time doesn't exist. It's an illusion produced by one sitting on the bank rather than seeing the river from the heavens. So time is cyclical. History is what is produced by the flow of water, but it's an illusion. By the way, I'm quoting some of this from James Sire. Who's James Sire? He's an author who wrote The Universe Next Door. Okay. That's a philosophy? Yes. Okay. Is that uh, book specifically related to Eastern thought or is it? No. Go over and over worldviews as well? or Yeah, it goes over worldviews. Okay. It's been influential in my thinking. Okay. So if you read that book, you'll see where I get some of the ideas that I have. Cool. Well, maybe we can link that in the show notes too. Sure. Cool. Yeah, what else are you thinking about for Eastern thought? Okay, so one final thing. How do you escape the cycle of samsara? What does that look like? And the answer from Hindu thought is going to be this type of enlightenment where you realize that all is one. And when you do this, then you realize that Atman, this life force within you that takes on these various manifestations, is really the same as Brahman, which is the oneness of the universe. We wouldn't call this God because this is not a person with volition, will, or purpose. It's more this word that we would use for the ultimate oneness of all things, something that transcends all the divisions and duality of this world that we experience with our senses or seem to experience. So that's the monism. Yes. That, that's open. Yeah. You're a drop of water that's dissolved in the ocean is the idea. You're united with this ultimate oneness. So individuality kind of ceases to be. Yes, it does. Okay. And that's a very important point. Now, the variation on this is Buddhism. So Buddhism also talks about the transmigration of souls, the cycle of samsara. But at the end, what you want to achieve is nothingness or the void, the term used, of course, is nirvana. So nirvana is different than the oneness. That's the distinction there? Yes. Okay. Because the oneness implies this overall unity of all things, whereas nirvana really means the void. So it's it's not a thing. It's not a oneness. It's beyond even the idea of oneness. It's absolute nothingness, the void. So it's like ceasing to exist? Yes. See, I, I always thought that that word was like an equivalent to like heaven. I know. Most people do. Oh, really? Okay. But it's not. In fact, it's almost the opposite of heaven. Is that an Indian word or something? Or? I believe it's Sanskrit. Sanskrit. Okay. Hinduism and Buddhism are both religions centered around the idea of how to escape human suffering. So it makes sense that the goal of that in some way is to escape the cycle that causes all this suffering. Okay, see, that, that makes sense, because I was like, how is nothingness better than being in the cycle? 
but it's still alleviation of pain and yeah. suffering and no more death and fear. And so that makes sense. But one is you're in nothingness. The other one is you just realize, actually, it just sounds like it's the opposite, actually. <laughs> Oneness, total unity with everything around you. Yeah. yeah, but you're not a conscious individual anymore in, in the Hinduism conception. There is still the Brahman, okay? But in the Buddhist conception, nirvana is the void. Technically, it's not nothing. It's more like the void from which all things spring. And it's hard to get Western words to yeah. really understand that. But that's the best way that I can put it, at least. So the practices, the religious practices like uh, meditation or that sort of thing are almost like reaching forward, trying to participate in that now kind of escaping samsara samsara what's it called samsara samsara okay yeah I, I, sorry they said like trying to escape the samsara yeah that's actually a good point so buddhists will say that the buddha two different kinds of nirvana so there was a nirvana in which he became fully enlightened and he was able to live in this peace and equanimity within himself because he fully embraced and understood all these ideas so he wasn't disturbed then by the sufferings and the variations and the illusions of this world. And then there is this ultimate nirvana, which means the death of the individual and the extinction of individual human personality into the void or the nothingness. So he could only reach the first one here in this life. Yes, anyone can, but that's the ultimate that we can do before our death. Gotcha. Or our ultimate death. So can I just say that I think that the desire to escape suffering is really a beautiful desire and makes a whole lot of sense. It is very resonant of like, yeah, you look around in this world, there is a lot of suffering. There's yeah. a lot of brokenness. And the solution of, hey, you can be alleviated from that is, I think it's something that resonates my spirit. Right. Glad you mentioned that because it highlights one of the key differences between East and West. Again, painting very broad strokes, but this isn't my own. This is what people smarter than me have observed, is that in the West, our focus is on making life more comfortable by satiating our desires. We have these desires, so we're going to try to do all that we can to satiate these desires, to fulfill them. Whereas in the East, it's almost the opposite. The goal is to rid yourself of your desires. And I think we can see the attractiveness of that, right? As Westerners, we see how the goal to satiate all of our desires leads to materialism and leads to manipulation and leads to abusing others for our own goal. So there is a lot to be said for that idea, mm -hmm. that part of what we need to do instead of seeking to fulfill all these desires that we have for, for power and wealth and toys and status, is to become the kind of person who doesn't even desire those things. It's kind of like the idea, there are two ways to be wealthy. One is to have more and more money, and the other is to have less and less desires, and therefore you have enough yeah, money. Yeah, contentment there. Yeah. That's really interesting. So what's your take? Like, what's your, what's your reflection on the Eastern perspective in the future? I think you can't be unimpressed by some of the ideas and the intellectual coherence of, of Buddhism, but especially Hinduism. It was C.S. Lewis himself who said, really, there are two religions in this world, Christianity and Hinduism. And he was overstating for effect, but he was recognizing that Hinduism presents a compelling alternative to what we normally think of. And it has 
certain ideas that are very beautiful and attractive. We shouldn't be surprised because it would not have lasted this long and it not influenced so many people without that. Yeah. But to my mind, it is a beautiful human way of dealing with the problem of human suffering, but apart from a revelation from God himself, because there is no personal God in that viewpoint. So I think it's impressive, but I think it's based upon the premise that there is not a personal God who created the universe and who is active in intervening with it. There is not that sense of hope. There is not that sense of grace that this God can come and intervene and do something different than necessity. Even karma operates by absolute necessity. There's no sense of grace here. There's no sense of mercy because there's no one to bring those things. Mm. It is an oppressive religion, but it is a religion without God. Therefore, to me, it's the best you can do to alleviate and give purpose, in a sense, to human suffering. Wow. That's my take for what it's worth. Cool. Cool. And what do you think about the idea of trying to limit desire? I think there's a lot for that. I mean, isn't that a biblical idea to some degree? I, I think so. I mean, the Bible talks about certain limitations, contentment, and I think about hunger, fasting is a Christian practice, Jewish practice as well. Sure. I, Islamic practice as well. So, yeah. Um, so there are certainly practices that flow from a, a an innate value of that to have our desires under control, at least completely done away with, I don't know, but at least under control. Self-control is, is a big Christian theme as well. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a whole theme within this in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that is not well-developed in most churches or most Christian teaching, this idea of minimizing our desires. Jesus himself talked about, is it the body more than clothes? Is it there more than food, you know? And Paul, the one who was the Christian writ large, kind of the example of a Christ follower, you know, he came to the point where he said, having food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And that is an impressive spiritual achievement, which I think a lot of people are not striving for at all. He did not view those things as so important or so central to what he had to have, the desires of this world, because he had bigger fish to fry. He had a bigger goal that he viewed as much more valuable. Hmm. It's interesting to see at least a little bit of overlap here. Yes. Which is, which is, which is really fascinating. And I think really interesting because, you know, nowadays there's a lot more just because of technology and globalization, that sort of thing. There's a lot more interreligious dialogue. And I, I think it's interesting that there's a, a little bit of an overlap of, about how desires can get out of control and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we can learn from our Hindu friends and Buddhist friends. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, shall we move on now to the naturalist perspective? Let's do it. Of the future? Cool. So big category, lots of subcategories here, but what's the philosophical stream of the naturalist future? If you put it in one word, it would be extinction. So again, you as an individual person, your purposes, your plans, your ideas, does not survive your death the 70, 80, 90 years that you live in this human body are everything that you are. And when you die, you cease to exist and all your thoughts and values and ideas and choices cease to exist as well. What, what about legacy? Right. So let's expand that a little bit. I would say everything you do, everything you value, everything you love, all that you are, all the choices you've made cease to exist 
comma, except in the influence that it has upon other people. But they will also cease to exist. Hmm, okay. So most of them are going to be just within a generation or two of you. But even humanity itself is going to die because the universe has an expiration date. So you don't escape that extinction just by prolonging it a little bit. It's watered down to the next generation a thousandfold. And then the next generation after that, a thousandfold indeed. But even if it weren't, there is an expiration date on all humanity. Let me explain what I mean by that. If this universe is all that exists, then we have a problem ahead of us. But the only mechanism for what happens to us are natural causes alone without an intervention from someone, a being like God, who can change things within this world or this cosmos of necessity and cause and effect. If there is nothing outside of that, and we're operating only on the laws of physics and chemistry, then what happens is you realize that humanity itself will die because the universe will die. Now, that will happen in one of two ways, possibly three ways. One is what's called the big crunch. And the big crunch is the idea that eventually the gravitational force will overcome the force of the expansion of the universe and everything will collapse back in upon itself. So it's the big bang reversed. Okay. Everything crunches back in infinitely small, just as it began infinitely small and expanded out. Hmm. So that's one. If, on the other hand, the forces of acceleration are stronger than the forces of gravity in the future, you can't maintain this equilibrium state forever, from what I understand, then you would have what, we, what you would call the big freeze, where the universe kind of rips apart and the individual molecules and pieces of matter become separated, and therefore no life can occur. You have scattered bits of matter everywhere, but nothing that congeals enough to create a living thing, let alone a planet. And then there are some people who believe that you'll have a big crunch some billion years down the future, and then maybe it will start up again. But obviously there's no proof for that one. So that's more, that would be kind of cyclical too. In a sense, but who knows what that would ever look like. Yeah. You still got to have faith to believe that though. Well, you would. And I think some people who choose to believe that do so not because they have any scientific proof, but because the alternative of this final extinction of everything just seems really harsh. Yeah. So those are the options. From a naturalistic viewpoint where the only thing that can affect our future is the laws of physics and our present state, ultimately the universe will die just like you will die. There is a quote here from Bertrand Russell that I read a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth revisiting here because this is where you come to with a naturalistic perspective. And, and who is he? He was one of the most influential, if not the most influential, atheist philosophers of the previous century, Okay, especially in the first half of the 20th century. This is what he writes in A Free Man's Worship. He says, quote, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, and that his origin, his growth, his hopes, and his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accident, of accidental collocations of atoms, and that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, and that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, 
all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain, I'm inserting here on his viewpoint, <laughs> that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitations henceforth be safely built. So he's one who's recognizing that if you're a naturalist, this is what you have to somehow try to build meaning on. So that's the future, and that's connected to the metaphysics, that there is no being outside of the material or natural world that is interacting with the world. And so life is just cause and effect. And so it doesn't matter your feelings or your labor or your intensity or your inspiration or your devotion or anything like that. At the end of the day, it's just going to all die. Yes. And again, on this viewpoint, there is no purpose for anything. There is no end goal that all things are working towards because those imply a purposer, someone who created this universe with a goal and they reject that idea. Well, at least any objective purpose. Right. You can have a subjective individual purpose, but that's simply another way of glorifying just simply your own desires for what you want your life to be or what choices you want to make. So you're saying, you know, people... People can still have the purpose, okay, my purpose is to be an author that adds value to other people's lives, or my purpose is to make a better life for my kids and grandkids than for myself, or those sorts of things can be individual purposes, but they aren't tied up into some objective purpose that's given by a transcendent being, which gives their life more meaning beyond just the grave, either their own personal grave or the grave of the, the universe. That's right. And I would also say, anytime you start talking about things you were talking about, making a better world, leaving a better life for my kids, you're using a word, better, which implies that there's some end state that you are progressing toward. or you're, And you're using a word, better, that by natural presuppositions, you have trouble giving a logical basis for one how one thing is better than another, other than simply it brings more pleasure. So even, even a really big purpose of like being an environmentalist who wants to save the planet and plant trees and prevent the polar ice caps from melting and all that stuff, it has a limitation. Even the, the life purpose of absolving poverty and hunger or, or even these big like worldwide things do have expiration dates. Yeah. Let's talk about the environmental part that you just mentioned. I believe Christians should be the greatest environmentalists in the world because we recognize that this world is a, as a gift of God in some, and in some ways, not every way, expresses the beauty and the power of God. It's his voice within this world in a sense. It is the painting that he has given to us that expresses the glory and the power and the mind of the creator, the painter. But if you reject that, that there is no God, then you have the question of why should I value the natural world as opposed to not valuing it? Why should I choose environmentalism as a goal? And that's a difficult question to answer. I think the best you can come up with was, is, well, because it's this big, beautiful system that's much greater than, than my life or even mankind as a whole. 
which is true, but you're using words of beautiful and valuable that you may have a hard time giving an ontological basis for. Mm-hmm. But also, as you mentioned, well, at some point, the world's going to be destroyed anyway. So what you're doing is you're making it more of a primitive state in one sense, of a more of a what we would call a natural state, but ultimately all those efforts are going to only last for a little while. Like you said, you can you can prolong it, but the the certain death what does he call it? The The vast death of the solar system. Yeah, but the vast death of this solar system is an inevitable outcome. Yes. That's, in one sense, I can feel like, okay, I can still, my life can still have purpose as I attach myself to things that are greater than I am and prolong the world's existence. But in another sense, what he's saying here is deeply troubling to me because he's saying, hey, at the end of the day, doesn't matter how much energy, doesn't matter how much devotion or inspiration or heroism, thoughts or feelings, hopes and dreams, fears, loves and beliefs all that stuff at the end of the day doesn't outlive me as far as I perceive it. Like you said, it, it, it can live in the memories and the that sort of thing of other people. Right. But if you're dead, that won't affect you. Doesn't 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 matter to me. No, you won't know it one way or another. So it seems to me like altruism would be a good ethic of a naturalist, but like you said, there would be it would be hard to come by an ontological grounding to that belief. Yes. I think it is. So one of the things you're talking about is creating a subjective purpose for your life in view of the fact that we don't, under naturalism's premises, have an objective purpose for our life, is really at the heart of what's called existentialism. And that's an important enough idea that we'll do a podcast or two just on that topic. Okay. Let me give you one final analogy of someone who understood and was wrestling with this idea. And that is the playwright and author Samuel Beckett. And he's most famous for writing Waiting for Godot, which is this play which illustrates the absurdity of trying to live in this world without a God and we're waiting for him and he never shows up and all that that means. But I think probably the idea of the hopelessness and purposelessness and meaninglessness of human life if all we are is this brief episode of consciousness between two oblivions, is really captured best in his very short play, Breath. Guess how long it is? Uh, you won't guess. It's 35 seconds. Oh, that's gonna, I, I was going to give him minutes, but... <laughs> so imagine this. Imagine paying to see that yeah. play. <laughs> imagine that, yeah, you're paying how much money to see this. <laughs> and you go in, and when you go in, The theater is completely dark, and there's a light that begins to shine on the stage, and all you see is a pile of garbage. And the light brightens a little bit, bit, but never fully, and then recedes to dimness and complete dark. (laughs) There are no words. There's only a recorded cry opening the play, and then an inhaled breath, then an exhaled breath, and an identical recorded cry closing the play. And that's it. That would be like like unsettling. Yeah. So unsettling. Almost like creepy, but like, ah, just, I don't know. Yeah. And he was trying to give an illustration of the meaninglessness of life. If we have no purpose and all we are, as I said before, is a brief, unplanned, unpurposeful consciousness between two oblivions. 
that's what you have. They have a play like Brett. Wow. Yeah. So on that note, let's uh let's go on briefly to talk about theism and its view of the future. Now, again, the view of the future and the view of purpose are attached to the metaphysics. All these things are just the natural outworking, the logical outworkings of the metaphysic. If there is no God with naturalism, then there is no purpose, there's no place it's going to, there's no place it's headed because all those things imply a purpose for uh, someone with will who created all things. You don't have that. It's ruled out by definition. But in theism, that's exactly what you have. So history has an end goal and a purpose, the purpose being to reach that end goal. And it's overseen by the one who brought it all into existence towards that goal. There's this interplay of God's work in human freedom, but there is this overall value and goal that our choices can either partner with and so choose to value those same things, or we could disregard or even rebel against as far as we understand that. That's what gives human choices purpose and meaning in this life. I wonder if that's also a reason why people innately have senses of purpose. I think so. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? On the theistic viewpoint, we are created in God's likeness to be God's image. He has a purpose. He has rationality. So it makes sense. It's logically consistent with that, that we also have those. And so I wonder if the purposes we would deem as good or better than other purposes are somehow maybe shadows of the objective purpose. I think so. Not a deductive, but a good inductive argument for God's existence can be made from this idea that we have purpose and we have values and we have desires of that kind. I don't think that's a foolproof proof of God in a technical sense, but I think it's a good pointer. I think that that's interesting as you listeners are listening. If you sense that innate sense of purpose, where does that come from? Right. Because that the naturalist perspective doesn't really give a good answer for that that's grounded in their metaphysics. I don't think so. Doesn't give a good answer for that that's grounded in their metaphysics. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's definitely a soft spot for our naturalist friends. Yeah. So for the individual, let's talk about this here a little bit. Actually, let's talk about the broad scale. What is God's purpose? Oh, yeah. I was going to ask that. <laughs> let's go. Okay. okay. So let's get some content to that. Yeah. All right. So if you are a Christian, and I'm just going to speak from that perspective because that's the theistic family that I am in, and so that's the one I'm most familiar with. We believe that God has a purpose for all that he does, including the creation of humanity and overseeing all that humanity affects or all that's in this world towards that goal. Now, we have to paint that in broad pictures because God doesn't give us a clear conception of things in the future. I think there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, uh, probably the most important, we probably are not yet in a place to understand or maybe appreciate what that would look like. So try explaining the joys of sex to a four-year-old, you know, they're just not going to get it. Mm -hmm. um, so in the same way, either our minds or our desires are not shaped yet so that it would be that valuable for God to create a detailed picture of that end goal. But we have it in broad strokes. And basically what that is, is this human divine partnership in which God and his human partners within this world, this creation, work to make this all that it should be. And I'm taking that 
from the whole of Scripture, but especially Genesis 1, what do you see? You see that the men and women, male and female together, he says, are created in God's likeness to be God's image within this world. If you look in the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that that word that's translated image there in Genesis 1 is the standard word you would use for an idol. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Now, don't get freaked out about that. We're not an idol of God, but we are an image. Now, think about that, though. So if you're going over to one of these ancient cultures and you see an idol of Baal or you see an idol of Ashtoreth or Diana, what are you seeing there? You are seeing a physical representation of a non-physical person. And that's what we are. Hmm. And the reason that God is so opposed to idolatry in the Bible is for two reasons. Number one, no image of a calf or a bull or anything else that you're going to create could ever begin to do justice to who God is. It might symbolize one aspect of God, but at the expense of all the others. But secondly, God, by his wisdom, has already created an image within this world that he desires to represent him, what he is like, and that's a human. Not in our bodies, God doesn't have a body, but in the ways that we interact with this world. We have abstract intellectual thought, we have purpose, we have imagination, the ability to communicate those abstract thoughts and work together. We have values. We have things that the rest of the species of this world do not have because we're designed to function in a different way. We are designed to not only interact with the reality that we see like an animal does, but we are designed to think of the way this world could be different than it is now, to conceptualize a preferable future, one that is more full of beauty and justice and rightness and harmony and love, and then work together towards that. All those gifts of language and intellectual thought, abstract reasoning and imagination, ability to communicate fully these things to each other, that's in line with that. So to me, that's the broad picture. And you see it again in Revelation 21. What does it say? Does it say that we go off to someplace called heaven, this disembodied state in the sky? No. No. It talks that, about the Eden being fulfilled. Exactly. First you have in Revelation 21, the, it says, now the kingdom of heaven comes to this earth. Now heaven comes to earth in a sense, that God's presence and power and will come to this earth. And then in Genesis or Revelation 22, you have the symbolizing this beautiful picture of Eden being restored. So there is that future perfect state where God has dwelt with man's sin and man's guilt and all the things that arose because of that so that that ultimate state can be fulfilled. That is where history is headed, and that's where our individual lives have a meaning and a purpose as we accept and work towards that or ignore and reject it. So creation care and justice and reconciliation and love of neighbor and feeding the hungry and all of that are pointing to that future restored state where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and there will be equity, and there will be peace, and there will be all those things. Is that, is that what you're saying? Exactly. When we do any of those things for the right reason, we are, in a sense, bringing that heaven into earth as Jesus prayed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will in heaven, as it's already being done, now being done on this earth, especially through 
what I'm doing this day. That's what we mean. Wow. And so another, another clarification. So you, you, you kind of made a, an offhand comment. So heaven isn't a place that you go to. No. Heaven is here. It will be. The kingdom of God will be upon this earth. It says in Revelation, they will reign upon the earth. Reign in the sense of be partners with God over his, and within his new creation. Wow. Yeah, I think that it'll be worth exploring in a future episode the biblical perspective of heaven because that feels a little bit different than, hey, you die and you go up. And the you know popular imagery of going up to the clouds or having a harp, which sounds horribly boring. It does. But I think you get a different perspective in the Bible, especially just thinking about like, okay, is there going to... What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, in, in Revelation, there's a garden to be cultivated and there's a tree that produces fruit sure. in every season and or every month. And so who's going to be harvesting that? Are we going to be eating it? Yeah. I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday. Oh, you think we're going to eat food in heaven? Well, yeah. Think there'll be toilets in heaven? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> And that's why I'm saying that we probably can't conceptualize what that exactly that looks like. So God's going to use a lot of symbolism from this world yeah. to describe the beauty and glory but we shouldn't take those symbols too literally. With signs and symbols, you look at them, but then you look beyond them because that's what they're pointing towards, right? So coming back to the main thing here then, our human sin, according to this worldview, is what is keeping that from happening, that we have within us, universally as humans, we have within us a wrongness that doesn't want that, that seeks its own desires at the expense of that kind of thing, especially towards other people. So we have this wrongness within us, this sin problem, this guilt problem. And this teaching of the scripture is that God himself has intervened, that there is no karma here, that there is a grace that God is offering through Jesus Christ, the one that he has sent within this world, this physical creation, this sequence of time and event, He has actually walked into this with us. He has stepped into the boat of our humanity in order to right the ship, as it were. And that he offers a free gift then of grace to anyone who will choose to partner with him and believe in him and what he has done. Those who do that, he says, will face a resurrection towards life. Yes, we will die, but we will die as a seed that's planted in the ground and not a stone a seed that then gives life to something beyond itself. We don't know what that looks like any more than a caterpillar could understand what his future life as a butterfly would look like, or an acorn, if an acorn had thoughts, could understand what his life as an oak would be like. But that's the metaphor Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, a seed planted that grows into something different, but it grows out of what was planted and died. So that's in an individual way of thinking that we now have the gift that God is offering to us, that this life doesn't have to be a meaningless episode of consciousness between two oblivions, but it can be a seed that's planted and grows into something we can't see, but we trust will be very glorious. That makes the purpose a little bit difficult here because we have a purpose, but it's not fully understood what it's moving toward, but we have an impression of what that's moving toward. So it just makes it a little tricky. Well, it does. I think best way to sum this up that our purpose right now is to know and embrace what God is doing through Jesus. And then secondly, to seek how to work that out in the person that I am, to let God's gracious activity 
continue in how I interact with the people around me and the world around me. Yeah. And so just like physical idols, when you see that, you think of the God that that is supposed to be representing as we become the people that God has created us to be when people see us, not because of our physical nature, but because of our character and our spirit and our joy and our peace and our love and our patience and our kindness and those sorts of things, then they will see and glorify God. Yeah, exactly. And we can even now partner with God, not only in the type of person we are, but what we do, we can actually work towards that kingdom. So in some ways, you know, we talked about Buddha and how he had this initial nirvana where he was enlightened as a human, but ultimately the ultimate nirvana occurred after his death. That's not a bad analogy. Obviously there's some difference, but we have the ability to live within the purposes of God within this life imperfectly, but really. But that will not be full until after our death at day of resurrection when God renews all things, the day of his new creation. So we can participate in that. We can symbolize that in what we are and what we do as we await for the fullness of that to come. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. It's good. I wish I could do it justice. <laughs> I, I really do. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you said, we, we, we can't understand fully what that looks like, but we can talk about it in sign and symbolism. So... And I'd rather work through what it means to live out this purpose and try to figure that out and how to do that. I'd rather have that problem a hundred times over than the problem of I'm here for no purpose at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. And I think for me, the question boils down to is, am I content with just a subjective purpose? If the philosophical grounds for this are, I'm just the flash of a light between two oblivions, you know, because we talked about, you can still have a subjective purpose, but is that something that I'm willing to live with and be content with as I think through the, the cohesiveness of the worldview as a whole? Right. And why is your subjective purpose any more valuable than someone else's subjective purpose, even if they choose something that would seem to us abhorrent? Mm. So that's, again, the soft spot of naturalism. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, like I said, I wish I could do this justice. There's so much more here, especially this last part. But I... This is the beautiful thing about the podcast is the format yeah. allows for some good dialogue. And then uh, it's nice to, as we're, as we're talking, have ideas for future episodes and right. that kind of thing. So be on the lookout for episode on heaven and hell or you know that kind of thing that would be more specific to a christian perspective but sure it'll be good all right cool thanks thanks so much for listening if you like what you hear click follow or subscribe depending on your platform check the notification bell so you're up to date with new episodes and leave us a review until next time